0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Father and Joe. I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Hicks. And Father, today might be one of these conversations to start with. I think I might not understand a church word. Um, And the point being, when we say the creed, when we talk about Jesus, we say consubstantial and equal with the Father. Um, So what today's question is really going to ultimately revolve around is the Trinity uh, specifically the way that Jesus and God, the father kind of interacted. Um, And when we were, I was sitting through the readings going on on Palm Sunday, there were just a couple of things that, that struck me during it that seemed that, I must think consubstantial means something different than what it means. Because in my head, it means equal. Uh, But in the reading from um, the, in the letter, I believe it was, it was St. John Paul, I just forget which letter it was. um, It said that Jesus was never intending to be equal with the father. So um, there's just some stuff that, that I don't understand. And then when, when Jesus is asking God, the father to allow him not to have to go through the following passion. To me, that just all looks at if you were equal, you wouldn't have to ask, you would just be allowed to do it. Like for instance, me and my wife try to be equal in our marriage. I don't ask when she goes shopping or whatever. I just trust her to go do it. Uh, and, and that's kind of the, the starting questions that I have based upon the readings of not just Palm Sunday, but also Holy Thursday and, and leading into Easter.
1: All right. Well, um, do we have time for, uh, a several three credit courses? <laughs> uh, uh, so, uh, first of all, the reading on Palm Sunday, the, uh, the epistle is from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, not St. Oh. John Paul. He's the Pope that we just, uh,
0: yeah it, a few years ago I, I met Saint Paul and just said it wrong, but playing the odds there so, saint Paul did write most of them
1: <laughs> it's uh it's a good guess that's right, yeah, his letter to the Philippians chapter two verses six to eleven, which are also verses that the church recites at evening prayer every uh Saturday evening, I believe so um in any event uh, uh what it says saint paul says. Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave being born in the likeness of men. He was known to be of human in state, and it was thus that he humbled himself, obediently accepting even death, death on a cross. Because of this, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven, on earth and under the earth, and every tongue can proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Uh, so that that hymn uh, of St. Paul, that St. Paul recorded in his letter to the Philippians, is uh a really important reflection for christology and that's christology that the church took centuries to work out and that we teach in seminary over the course of semesters and it gets boiled into one word consubstantial in the creed and a few other elaborations god from god light from light true god from true god begotten not made consubstantial with the father so Uh, Your idea of consubstantial is uh, correct, I'm sure. What it said in the letter to the Philippians is that, and you can interpret this in various ways, but one way to interpret it, that he didn't deem equality with God something to be grasped at. He didn't need to grasp at it because he already had it. So it wasn't something that he had to grasp at. It was already, he was eternally begotten of the Father. But out of love for us, he emptied himself of his divinity and he assumed Our human nature, that's what we call the incarnation. That's what we celebrate on March 25th when the angel declared unto Mary and she conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so Christ, who is eternally consubstantial of one substance of the same divine nature as the Father, became one with us. He assumed a human nature and he became like us in all things but sin as it says in the letter to the hebrews so um so that's what we're we're dealing with and then you know then we then we wrestle and these are especially modern questions but you know we wrestle with things like uh also on palm sunday you heard uh the agony in the garden and jesus said father if it is your will let this cup pass from me but not my will thy will be done and and so we see the agony of Christ and his humanity, and we say, well, if he's one with the Father, well, like, why is there a struggle? Why, what's going on there? And, and that's where we see the, the reality of his human nature, and also the fact that even though he never committed sin, in some mysterious way, he became sin. He took our sin on himself. And we get that in several ways. St. Paul says that explicitly in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Uh, God made him uh, who did not know sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And uh, also in the, in the prediction of Isaiah, by, uh, by his wounds, uh, he, has, uh, he has taken our, our infirmity on himself. And by his wounds, we are healed. And so uh, he's, he's really wounded. He suffers, and he suffers not just in physical ways, but in you know sort of moral ways, because he takes the, the weight of our sin on himself. And then that would be one way to interpret the cry of Jesus from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, if he's consubstantial with the Father, how can he experience forsakenness? Well, in some mysterious way, he experiences forsakenness in his human nature, even while in the Godhead, He remains always united with the Father. So, that's why I say these are uh, these are mysteries that take a bit to unpack, and we don't get to sort of pure, clean answers. Uh, we get we get indications from various directions to understand how to interact with Jesus, how to understand His humanity, how to understand His union with the the Father and His divine nature, and uh, a lot of these. These kinds of things, you have to build up whole kind of philosophical systems, and you know, to even describe these concepts. But, um, but the but the, the very simple thing is true, and and maybe it's said most simply by uh, Leo the Great and the, the Council of Chalcedon. He is true God and true man, and that's how we understand Jesus: true God and true man and so we say well if he's if he's god he should be this and this and you say yes he's true god well but if he's man he should be this and this well yes and he's man <laughs> so and and of course we hold together that paradox to to reduce it is uh is to is to fall into heresy on either side we and that's basically what the heresies about christ have been for the past 2000 years is losing his divinity or losing his humanity in one or another way. So we hold them together in that simple way. He is true God and true man.
0: And I think that this might be part of my weakness coming out here in regards to that is that when when we get to the passion, to me, it seems like this is the part where the gospels emphasize the true man element. But during his teachings, when he's performing the miracles, it's performing, you know, emphasizing the true God. Uh, but even that word emphasizing doesn't take away mean that the other one isn't there. It just means that we're kind of putting mm-hmm. an extra bright light upon this person um rather than the other. Um, so or, or this action rather than, than than the other half of it. And I think that, that that might this whole conversation might just be leading to to that flaw in, in me you know, interpreting the Bible and, and listening to that, because you know, one of the most common uh, miracles that people articulate is is the loaves and the fishes where God just produces an overabundancy uh, of food. And obviously that's a, a reference to many things that he overabundantly gives all the graces, but for those people who particularly were there, he gave, he gave literal food. So, in that moment, it wasn't like he wasn't talking to people and interacting with them, and also being a guy, and, and you know, having conversations, possibly getting a sunburn, you know, like all of these things that that happen to us as, as regular everyday people. And you know, I get that the, that the Bible is is trying to concentrate so much things that are unbelievable into a, a quick, concise gospel. Um, that it's very very hard to do um in fact actually that was the gospel reading of of Sunday that just passed was there was many more things that happened in Jesus's life that we just didn't have the ability to put in this gospel um and I, I I've heard some other people say that that is kind of a, a an easy way out to to try to diminish God but I think that it's actually the opposite it's he's done so much that it's almost that we can't remember it, you know. If you if people have gone through a, a truly moving experience, it's hard to remember every single detail um, when you've just gone through it. Let alone years later. So I get that that's a little bit off of where I started here, but that was just a thought that that had occurred to me here, and we found that we do our best episodes when we release these thoughts out immediately. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so w- with that being said, Father. I get that that the Bible's emphasizing different parts at different times. And it almost seems that the way that and I, I guess Saint John in particular, the way that the Gospel of John is written, that it, it kinda ultra zooms in to to the humanity that he's going through. And something I don't think it's discussed enough is the the mental anguish that he has to go through. You know, on on the one hand, he's been teaching his disciples to go out and to go with peace and to be with him and be united with him throughout the last three years. And essentially, as soon as the mob shows up, his number one disciple pulls out a sword and does the actions of war. Um, You know, that has to be, trying you know you're the person who's supposed to know this the most but you're pulling out a sword uh kind of big as a question why does he even have a sword but you know w- what did i just teach you over what did was all this for if you're forgetting about it as soon as things are getting hard and to me that thought sticks it, it's something more that sticks with me on good friday than, than it does on, on Um, holy thursday even though it's from the the garden and that might again this might just all be me looking at things incorrectly but that that was always a a thing that i think that people don't dwell upon about the humanity of jesus is it wasn't there's no way it could have been mentally easy i mean obviously we can see the 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 physical elements but just the mental anguish before you even compound taking on everyone else's problems, which is what taking on sin is. So I want to give you a chance to tell me if I'm right or wrong and and to see if this is something that is worthwhile going down this road.
1: Well, what you said, uh, you know, in, in terms of the the emphasis, and I, I like the way that you said it, it's not to say that it's exclusively one or the other, but there's a certain emphasis. And really it's it it is flipping back and forth throughout the gospel because both because the the identity of Jesus is what the whole gospel is about. And so, you know, in the infancy narratives, we see the total helplessness of Jesus. We see the miraculous signs that surround his birth that give this kind of credence, but Jesus himself is in all ways like a child. He has maybe particular wisdom. He can speak to the uh, uh, scribes and uh, the, the experts in the temple, but uh, at the same time, he's obedient to his parents. They don't know who he is in Nazareth. They're surprised when he comes out in his public testimony. He begins to do miracles, which is de- demonstrating his divinity, but he also needs sleep and food and, uh, and, and can only be in one place at a time. And so he has to move on to other towns, which demonstrates his humanity. And uh, he, he doesn't seem to be sort of all-knowing and walking through walls. And you know, he's he's abiding by all the all the laws of nature in everything else he's doing. But then, he's he's healing. He's casting out demons. And then, as we enter into his passion, you know, in the agony in the garden. Uh, He's he's struggling and sweating blood. On the other hand, when the soldiers come and they say, uh, you know, are you Jesus the Nazarene? And he says, I am. And he makes this divine declaration and they fall back. And so we see the power of his divinity. And although we see the suffering of his humanity, no one could bear the kind of suffering that he bears without divine strength. And so, you know, we get these, these, uh, this confluence of humanity and divinity that's really flowing throughout the whole gospel. And, uh, and then of course the, the ultimate uh, proof of this is is the resurrection in which he is not just a resuscitated corpse returning back to a human life that he had before, but he has entered into a new way of being human that is not no longer subject to death. And so there is this, uh, this leap forward in his divinity uh, as he is able to conquer death by his own power, so you know we see uh, we see all of that, and and that's why it's all there. But uh, it's it's sort of not spelled out in philosophical terms, you know, or even to talk about the mental anguish. Um, those are those are particularly modern questions, you know. There's a reason that psychology has developed in the modern time, where we become more in touch with the subjective experience of our humanity and. I've tried to really parse that out and define it and describe it. And, and uh, so then we say, well, what's the inner experience of Jesus? And, and we don't ultimately know what the inner experience, the psychology of a God-man is. Uh, but we kind of tease and tease at it and tug at it and scratch at it a little bit and try to get some insight into what he was going through. And, you know, I, I, frustration implies... Uh, disappointed expectation. If he's God, is he going to be disappointed in his expectation? I mean, did he expect more of Peter than that? We could say that Peter's denial hurt him deeply, but he also expected Peter's denial. And so it probably hurt him a degree less, you know? So anyway, you can kind of go back and forth with all of those things where he's experiencing real distance from the father as a consequence of our sin that he bears. And yet, he still has the beatific vision he still is in union with the father that does that make him experience it less or actually more if you can see perfect beauty and you're immersed in the worst ugliness doesn't it make the ugliness even uglier if you can see perfect beauty at the same time and so you know all, all of those are the kinds of reflections which are um yeah you know like we can invite all of our listeners to reflect on those kinds of things. And and uh, we have to be a little careful about defining them or asserting them too strongly because, you know, the church just hasn't made ultimate definitions about all of those kinds of details. But, but the basic principle applies. He's true God and true man. And so, you know, those are, that's the, the simple statement that we, that we assert and, and hold on to.
0: So, Going back to the creed real quick, when we say true God from true God, what is that in reference to? Like, I understand that, that we say it, I just don't get why, I guess is what I'm trying to say, or ask.
1: Uh, I mean, because he is, Jesus is God, and uh, he proceeds eternally from the Father. So he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He's not a half god or a false god or uh, a secondary god. So, so that's um, in
0: reference to Christ and God the Father, in terms of when it, when we say yeah. true God from true God. Okay,
1: th- yeah, I believe I, in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived. Uh, who,
0: oh gosh, <laughs> I saw. I <laughs> can't just say me- these I, things I, out I, of just, out of context. I just you all, sorry. Yes, who,
1: who is who is true God from true God? Yeah, that's right.
0: Okay. It, 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 it's, it's just one of those things that, that I, I assume that's what it was, but since I had a lot of questions about the creed, and that's kind of where I'm correlating this all to, is to make sure that I'm articulating things and trying to ask the right questions. Um, but but I, I can see how how this can be multiple, multiple years of studying um, the message of the Trinity. Because uh, in some ways it's it, it, the gospels are pretty straightforward. You know, there are parts of it that are, um, like the Beatitudes. Just do this, live a meek life, and you'll have a better life. Um, you know, there, there are parts that are direct like that, uh, and then there's parts that, that you got to think about more and, and kind of dive into. And they like I said, I, 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 I get that from the starting point. I was looking at it from. The backwards angle and that's why I wasn't able to to see the correct conclusion so um, I kind of want to end this on, on this last question here because it is something I, I didn't understand and it's, it might be basic and irrelevant but at, at the end of the day why did Peter have a sword? Um, I, I just don't understand that when, when they're in the garden together praying um, you know why was he armed? Well,
1: uh, Jesus says um, in in Luke 22, verses 35 to 38, uh, well, verse 36, Jesus said to them, but now let him who has a purse take it, and likewise a bag, and let him who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So, I mean, Jesus told them to. And then it comes back and says, um, well, he, he continues, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was reckoned with transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. But so Peter had a sword because Jesus told him to get a sword.
0: I, I, I guess that it's the teaching then that I have the question about, because it, it, that seems just so contrary to the, if you get hit on one side of your cheek, present the other. Um, and, and teaching against the eye for the eye um it, I I have to be understanding this wrong because to me that that is implied that, well, we gotta we're gonna have a fight now, so let's go all the way. Um, all the way armament and all of that. So I have to be missing something here.
1: Well, there's nothing that said let's go all the way.
0: Well, I I'm you- sorry, I, I that's my interpretation because that is the I don't know, gun of the era. There there was no guns. Um <laughs> so I, I apologize for that but the-
1: well yeah certainly I, again uh, we, we can enter into a rather lengthy conversation about just war theory and and uh, the right and in fact the obligation to uh self-defense and defense of others so defense of innocence so there you know war is not inherently evil uh, and and is uh, certainly it has a place in Christianity, and that's why there have been wars. So that all gets a, a little bit complicated. But in any event, having a sword doesn't uh, necessitate using it. And uh, the the teaching that Jesus gave is: if you hate your brother, then uh, then you've you've committed murder against him. So even having a sword doesn't necessitate hate, and it's not promoting hate. Uh, self-defense is not promoting hate, and uh, even and defending another, even to the point of potentially using deadly force, doesn't necessitate hate. So uh, it certainly can be an expression of hate if we start using deadly weapons and deadly force, and it can become an expression of uh, our, uh, our our hatred for our brother and our desire to destroy him, but it doesn't have to be that way.
0: So... Um. yeah so i i, I appreciate that because like i said it, it, this is five plus years we, we've been doing this episode and we still come up with new ways for me to be wrong <laughs> and i like to think that that i'm trying to do you know I, I i obviously have read read this and and given a lot of thoughts this but it, it's it's kind of remarkable about how how this how this can happen um about to just constantly trying to learn and still being perplexed um by by trying to study jesus and, and God ultimately yeah. yeah well,
1: maybe it would be a worthwhile episode to spend a little time with uh just war theory Catechism certainly has lots of uh explanations for all of that.
0: Yeah, and I believe that's what we'll do in the in the next episode here coming up. So we, on that note, we do thank everyone here for listening. Um, with that being said, if you could share or subscribe to our, our podcast, please give a star rating if you haven't, especially if you're on Apple. And we appreciate everyone who has as you're helping us grow through all the algorithms in which uh, Apple has and obviously through word of mouth helping us grow as well. So we thank everyone for being out there today, and we will be with you again next week.